But you had to get the total sense of what's going on in Joshua chapter 3 through 4, so I decided to read all of this. But uh, one thing that may help you in situations like this when you read a long section of Scripture uh, that's filled with intricacies and details and switchbacks like you find in this particular chapter is fast forward to the end. That's a little trick I use when I find a story is difficult or when I find an argument is hard to understand. I often fast forward to the end of it and see if I can figure out from the conclusion how I'm to work my way through the details that are scattered throughout the body of the argument or the book. And and here, what you find at the end of Joshua chapter 4, I think, is the lens through which you are to read uh, this event where Joshua sums up the meaning of this crossing of of Israel over the Jordan, and he says in verse 22, you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. We're going to find out what that means here in a second, but I believe that is the lens through which we read this particular miracle account so that we can understand its meaning, and second of all, with application. Let's step back, first of all, and ask ourselves, what is the meaning of this crossing of Israel over the Jordan River on dry ground? And I think one of the things that we'll probably want to ask ourselves before we begin to work our way too far into this miracle is, so what? After all, I think that there is somewhat of a difficulty for us in a modern age to read about a river crossing and say, wow, that was spectacular. In an age in which we build bridges over large bodies of water, lakes, rivers, and even parts of the ocean, in an age in which we can transport people very easily over vast bodies of water in large ships or in airplanes, I think one of the obvious questions that we would want to be honest with ourselves about is, so what? What is so big about God leading his people across a river? As you begin to look at the details of the passage as they unfold, particularly in chapter 3, I think we will get a start in answering that. And the first part of the lens through which we need to read this question, so what, as we ask it about the crossing, is who is it that's involved? Now, first of all, this is not a Cub Scout troop on a Sunday afternoon hike who've encountered a raging body of water. This is the people of God, this is the children of Abraham, this is the covenant people, these are the ones who have been redeemed out of Egypt, these are the people who in chapter 1, under Joshua's command, have received a commission to rise, get up, and go across the Jordan. So the people make this First of all, a perspective we have to think about. Second of all, the purpose. And and again, the purpose is not simply crossing from one side of a river to the other. If this is the people of God crossing the river which separated them from their inheritance. This is not any set of real estate. This is not any piece of land. This land, which as it was described in chapter 1 of Joshua and at various other places in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, 
is the land that has been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, is the land which is theirs to be their eternal possession. This is the land which Abraham looked forward to, which pointed forward to, rather, an eternal city which had foundations whose builder and maker of Lord. In other words, this land was to be a type set before the people of Israel in the Old Testament as a type of heaven. So this is not an ordinary people. This is not an ordinary piece of real estate. And secondly, this river is impossible to cross. I wonder if you noted it as we read through the narrative in chapter 3. A little detail in verse 15. If your Bible's open, look at it. It said, And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark are dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks in the days of harvest. Now, by the way, this is just one of the many... Oh, I don't know, sore thumbs sticking out for lack of a better word, in the flow of this narrative. I I hope what you picked out is that as the narrative unfolds, it says something's going to happen. It gives some details about something's going to happen. It comes back to something it said would happen. It enlarges upon that. Then it goes to something else. It it, it really darts all around. And, And part of that is not because, as the liberals used to say, this uh, set of... Uh, narratives here was pieced together by an editor who did it very clumsily hundreds of years after it happened. But it's the writer building up suspense for something that was enormous. And and one of the things that you get um, a perspective on when you read verse 15 and the flow of thought here is that it's absolutely unnecessary to add this last detail The Jordan overflows its banks in all the days of the harvest. And the only reason why that little parenthetical remark would be inserted there was to underscore the drama of the situation. Imagine you are one of those priests who's carrying the Ark of the Covenant over your shoulder and you come to this river. which according to descriptions is something like this. Dale Davis in his commentary says, The river conditions help the reader appreciate the miracle. The river's flood plain is anywhere from 200 yards to one mile wide. The flood plain was packed with tangled brush and jungle growth. And the depths were anywhere from three to 12 to 15 feet, and the current was rapid. And so in every way, as you step back from this river, you realize that it is an impossible obstacle for these people to cross. And then you see these priests coming down there, carrying this ark, about to set their toes in the midst of a raging river raft. And the scene is set up to say the only way they're going to make it across is if God does something miraculous. Of course, that's exactly what God intended to do. And one of the things that's interesting throughout this chapter is how God 
communicates to Joshua, and then Joshua communicates to the people, and then Joshua communicates to the priest. But it doesn't really seem as everybody is coordinated in terms of understanding how this is going to happen. It's almost just as if God tells Joshua, and he may not even tell Joshua everything, but he says, we're going to get you across that river, you're going to go across that river, and here's how you're going to do it. And first of all, he says to Joshua, you're going to have these priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, and the people are going to walk way behind. Look at verse 4. It says, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. In other words, that's about 1,000 yards. That was as close as any Israelite was allowed to be in relationship to that ark. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the way God has set up this actual river crossing is in such a way that all of the people of God will be able to witness it. All of the people of God will be able to witness it. They will have a spectator point of view. From 1,000 yards, they will see the priest walk down into the raging rapids of the Jordan and see what's going to happen next. There's also something else interesting in terms of the instructions that God gives uh, to the people of Israel, which I would argue are part of the design of God so that his people will understand this miracle. He says in verse 5 to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for, the Lord, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You see, God intended that this miracle would be understood not only in terms of its meaning, but its, its purpose and significance. And in order to help that happen, God said to the people of Israel, Consecrate yourselves, that is, sanctify yourselves. And the last time you see that particular command given to Israel is on Exodus chapter 19 when God comes down to Moses and he says, I am going to come down on this mountain and I am going to meet with the people of Israel. And because I am going to come down this mountain, because I am going to meet with this people of Israel, you better tell them to consecrate themselves to meet the Lord. You see, what God is requiring here is that the people would set apart in their hearts a fear and a reverence for God so it would be in a right frame of mind to perceive what act God is doing here. So interesting to see what happens when you don't read God's word with a consecrated heart. I found here, as I'm studying this miracle in the past week, how oftentimes evangelicals and liberals find common ground in looking at this miracle. On the one hand, often evangelicals, and I would argue, at least the people I'm referring to are doing it, at least out of right motive, they're trying to explain how this miracle could happen, instead of explain a way that a miracle happened. But in the midst of explaining this, they argue that there are a number of historical instances recorded when the river of Jericho was dammed up by Adam at the same place that it was said to have been dammed up in our passage by naturally occurring mudslides. And so what they want to argue is that because we have uh, this uh, set of historical accounts of the Jordan being dammed up, that that it's not too hard for us to believe. Of course, the liberals read this and they say it's hopelessly impossible to believe, so we'll just forget it right now. But the problem here is God does not tell them to consecrate their hearts so that they can understand that a natural a disaster has occurred. There is
there's nothing natural about what you see happening next as the priests walk down to the water and they tip their toes in the raging river of the Jordan. And what does the word of God says? But the water stood up in a heap. As if it was piled on top of each other like a massive wall. It's not a natural phenomena. That's not a mudslide. You see, in order for us to appreciate the miracle, God says to his people, you need to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. You need to approach the facts of the narrative, the proper reverence and awe. This is the working of the Lord. So imagine here now people of God that Israel is standing a thousand yards away and they see the priests, little tiny dots down by the waterside. A massive rushing river. And then all of a sudden, the water's standing up like a wall. And a desert forms in the midst of what was once a raging, wet riverbed. It was spectacular. In any estimation, this was spectacular. And we see something of how spectacular that it, that it was. Because, because Joshua now, in chapter 4, goes on to a command that a memorial be set up. If you see that, starting with verse 2, Joshua says in chapter 4, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them to take up twelve stones from out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place for the feast. The priest's feet were standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you'll go tonight. This is one more indication of the fact that, that God had intended for the people of Israel uh, to understand this miracle. I mean, God really goes out of his way to set this set of circumstances up so that Israel will grasp this miracle. And that's very rare that God does that. It's very rare that God sets up all the circumstances in such a way that when he performs a miracle, that the people will be in the proper location with the proper heart perspective and the attending signs afterwards so that the meaning of that miracle will be reformed intergenerationally upon them. And I'm arguing that because of all of these unique details that this miracle is an extremely unique miracle that God has performed here so that his people, all of his people, will always stand back at marble and they will begin to think about its significance and they will begin to apply it to their understanding about their salvation and their redemption because clearly this miracle is designed to be so much more than a miracle about a bunch of people crossing over what once was a raging river. This miracle is about our salvation. I want to take a moment to build that argument here. What did this miracle mean for Israel? With those details in mind, let's, let's, let's follow up on our question. What did this miracle mean for Israel? I would argue that this miracle meant for Israel... That by the personal presence and power of God, they are led into the possession of their inheritance. By the personal power of God, they are led into their inheritance. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Verse 10 of chapter 3, Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. 
and that he will surely dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. You see, this was to be to Israel a sign, first of all, of God's power. And everywhere you look at this passage, power is marked out and manifest. You see, power in the water. We've already talked about the raging torrent, which is, which is washing down the River Jordan here. It is it's an extremely impressive river at harvest times in terms of the power and the force of the water. And yet, as the text tells us, the water stands up like a heap, like a wall of water. Secondly, we're told the power of God is manifested in the dryness of the land which Israel walked across. Two different times in our text here, dryness of the land is alluded to. And the same word for dry that is used here in Joshua 3.17, and then also down in 4.22, is the same word for dry that's used in the crossing of Israel over the Red Sea on what? Dry land. And it is the same word for dry that is used... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, the very first time the word is used in Hebrew Scripture, to refer to God creating dry land out of the midst of what? A watery chaos. All these words are used together, I believe, to link together these events, to say something about them in relationship to others that we are to understand. And I believe that it is about, this is by the sovereign, creative, omnipotent power of God, first of all. And he leads his people across. And immediately, when the priests lift their foot out of the Jordan, what happens? The wall of the water crashes. The dry land disappears. And the people of God are safe. Where? In the land of the Jordan. But it's not just about a manifestation of power. Again, go back to verse 10. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. By this you shall know the living God is among you. Then you go on to verse 11. It says, Behold, the ark of the coming of the Lord is crossing over ahead of you. It's not just that it's power from the Lord. It's the power of God's presence among Israel. There is a massive piece of furniture that you cannot miss in this entire narrative, and that is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Seventeen times in the space of two chapters, the writer zeroes in on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which was the personal presence of God in power among his people. And the entire way the details of this um, miracle are narrated is to assure Israel that it's not just by power that they go across the Jordan River on dry ground. It is by the personal presence of God with them. In fact, it's by the personal presence of God going down into the river before them and leading them through to the other side. The miracle is telling us that God has led his people personally by his power into the land of their inheritance. 
we begin to ask ourselves, well, that's what it meant for Israel, that by the personal presence and power of God, you leads his people to their inheritance. What does it mean for us? And I want to begin by saying there's a wrong way to apply it to ourselves. And I believe the wrong way to apply this passage to ourselves is to work a quick equation between power manifested then and power now. As if God just uh, manifested power in the crossing of the Jordan, and we deduce from that that the kind of power that God has there is omnipotent, sovereign, creative power. That's what he has. Therefore, whatever situation you are in, whatever distress, whatever obstacles are in your way, you just call down power from God and he fixes it for you. I know that's how a lot of people treat God in the New Testament. I know that's how a lot of people treat God today. Well, if it was powerful then, then that means that God's power is for us now. So whatever problem, whatever door needs to be opened up, whatever opportunity needs to come our way, just pray and God will exercise his power. Well, that's not true, first of all, because there's a lot of times that God intentionally put obstacles in your life so that you will learn how to be humbled and rely upon his grace to deal with the frustration of an obstacle in your life. That would be dishonest to say that. But again, it's not just about power. It's about God's presence and power leading his people into their inheritance. Now, right away, you keep, I'm repeating that so many times, I'm hoping that you're thinking of another presence of God in power that leads. God's people into their real inheritance. Of course, that is stamped across the New Testament and that has taken place in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the personal presence of God in power among his people. That's what, that's what it means to say God incarnate is God with us. Jesus is the tabernacle of God among men. That's what the New Testament says. Jesus uh, tells uh, uh, the Jews who were standing around listening to him in John chapter 10, verse 17, he says, I lay down my life so that I might take again. And in verse 18, he says, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down by my power, and then I have power to take it up again. You see, there is the personal presence of God acting in power for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And what does he do when he acts in power for our deliverance? Is that he brings us into our inheritance. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. And then on the 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of the law, that he might redeem us from the law, that we might have adoption as sons. And then he goes on to say, If you are a son, you're no longer a slave, but an heir through God. Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of this. He is the personal presence of God and power who leads his people into their true eternal inheritance. There's something else I want us to see in this passage which helped connect it to our own experience of the new covenant situation here. And that is uh, what Joshua says in explanation of the miracle in verse 23 of chapter 4. Mind you, this is Joshua explaining uh, the crossing of the Jordan River so that the parents will know how to teach their children. 
what to say when they see those 12 stones piled up. Here's what Joshua says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Very fascinating what Joshua does here is that Joshua puts the soles of the feet of those children who the parents are speaking to. Not only on the dry land which Israel crossed over when they went over the Red Sea. Look at that. It does say that. And then he says that about the Jordan as well. He says, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed. And just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea when he dried up before us. By the principle of covenant solidarity, uh, Joshua tells these parents to instruct their children that what God did for Israel in bringing those first Israelites redeemed out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land, and then the subsequent generation of Israelites who crossed over the Jordan River on dry land, what Joshua is saying, what God did for those Israelites, for your parents and grandparents, he did for you, you were there. You were there, he's saying, in this great act of redemption. When the Lord delivered his people from the corruption and bondage to slavery and sin in Egypt, you were there when God led you across that Red Sea on dry ground. And you were there when God led his people across the Jordan River into their inheritance. By that same principle of covenant solidarity, people of God, the New Testament tells you over and over and over again that you were not only in those redemptive historical acts of God, but you are in the climactic redemptive historical acts of God which fulfilled those previous ones. What does the New Testament proclaim to you? It says that when Christ was crucified, that you were nailed to the cross with him. It says when Jesus Christ came out of that grave on resurrection morning, that you were raised in Christ. And it says when Jesus Christ was exalted into the heavenly of heavenlies, it says you were raised and seated and exalted with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, a greater leader than Joshua has come to lead his people into their promised inheritance. That's Jesus. By his powerful presence, that Jesus has led us into the possession of our salvation and the possession of our promises. So what does this passage mean to a new covenant believer this morning? Is that you have the possession of the internal inheritance through the powerful operation of Jesus Christ. And that you will possess it in consummation. You see, the scriptures tell us in the New Testament that we possess 
this inheritance already, but then at least open the concept that we, it's in a provisional way, but yet someday we'll receive it in fullness and consummation glory. And, and if I could, without overly complicating our passage this morning, say it's very similar to Israel, because when they come through the Jordan River into the land of promise, though they possess it, they don't possess it in consummation. They possess it already, but not fully yet, not yet, because they have to go and, and conquer the inhabitants of the land. And I know that that's an extra detail, and it might go over many heads, but the point of it is here, I believe we read forward in this, because Jesus by his power led God's people across that Jordan to inherit their promises. We have the confidence that Jesus, by his power, will lead us into the consummation and possession of our inheritance. Nothing will separate us from that. Nothing will separate us from that terrible moment when we close our eyes in death to the possession of the fullness of that promise in resurrection glory. Jesus will lead his people by his power and the fullness of their promises. Joshua explains the meaning of this miracle. It's about God leading his, his people into the possession of their promises. And now Joshua applies it. Verse 24. Joshua 4.24. Joshua goes on to say, and this is in his admonition to uh, the the fathers about how they're to explain the meaning and significance of this miracle to their children. He goes on to say that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We're going to deal with that last purpose clause there. What is the meaning and significance or application of this miracle to God's people, well, Joshua says, is they're, they're to fear the Lord. Because what God has done by leading his people through the raging rivers of the Jordan into their promised inheritance, they are to fear the Lord. A concept you find throughout the Old Testament repeatedly, the fear of the Lord is commanded and commended. For instance, the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 33, 6 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Psalm 34, 9 says, fear the Lord, you his saints. Another psalm says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The New Testament, again, repeatedly commends the fear of the Lord. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Fear God. Repeatedly throughout the Bible, you, you see this as a, a category of Old Testament and New Testament piety. This is what's to mark believers. Fear the Lord. Bruce Waltke says, the fear of the Lord is an emotional response of fear, love and trust. Charles Bridges in his great commentary in the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. What is it for you to fear the Lord this morning, people of God? It's to 
bend yourself humbly out of reverence for the Lord to keep His commandments. Something I was reading last week reminded me that that's something you cannot do unless you're a child of God. The response that Joshua commands here is something you cannot do unless you are partaker in the promises of God. Unless these promises which God has fulfilled on behalf of Israel and now in the new covenant through Jesus Christ by his cross and resurrection, unless you are partaker in those, you cannot fear the Lord. I was reading an article entitled, The Fear of the Lord is the Ending of Freedom. But the author said, by definition, once a person relies on faith to answer the questions they have about life, the universe, and everything, they lose the ability to determine the facts for themselves. Fear of the Lord is simply a displacement of critical thought in favor of accepting whatever rules that those who claim to be speaking from the Lord give. That is an honest answer of an unbeliever to the concept of fear of the Lord. What, what this unbeliever is perceptively seeing is that when one relies on the Lord, he is relying by faith on all that the Lord instructs him. And to an unbeliever, that is tyranny, that is bondage, that is a loss of your mind, of your will. Reminds us what the Old Testament says repeatedly. There is no fear of God before the eyes of unbelievers. The fear of the Lord is what we receive as we participate in the promises of the gospel. You see, if you are a participant in the promises of the gospel, if if you by covenant solidarity were there uh, with your forefathers of old who crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground and then the Jordan by dry ground, if you were there by covenant solidarity through union with the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive acts on the cross and in his resurrection, his ascension, what is it for you? What do you have to do in response to these great acts? Well, Joshua says, you're to fear the Lord. You're to respond with reverence and awe. You are to respond in trust and in love. You are to bend humbly to the Lord's law. You are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. You are to live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, as Peter says. You're to do what that unbeliever just said that those who fear the Lord do. Which is, by faith, rely on God and His Word for the answers to everything. By faith, you rely on God for the answer to your origin. By faith, you understand that the worlds were framed. By faith, you accept accept the scriptures as the inspired word of God. By faith, you believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of redemption. The fear of the Lord for you this morning means that by faith, you live in reverence and obedience and love and trust like 
the son, as Charles Bridges says, who bends himself humbly to his father's law. What do we do in response to the crossing of the Jordan River? We do what Israel was called upon to do as well, as those who, by covenant solidarity, participated in those promised those promises fulfilled, we fear the Lord. So I leave us with what Joshua exhorts the people of God at the end of the spectacular day. When he says, The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea before us, that all the peoples of the earth may know him. That the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray.